five, six, seven, eight. Hello, stagey friends. Welcome back to another episode of Breaking the Curtain. This show history episode is a real splash. Can you guess what it is? Don't worry, you'll find out really soon. <laughs> We're also joined by our lovely podcast friends, Bobby and Christina from My Favorite Flop. We recently joined Bobby and Christina on After the Bows, a post-podcast release chat following their episode on Rocky and about the 2013-2014 Broadway season. And obviously, we just totally fell in love with them. They are the coolest, sweetest people ever. So we had to invite them to join us for an episode. You're also probably wondering why I'm doing the intro without Jocelyn, and that is because I am not in this episode. So I wanted to sprinkle some love to my favorite flop, Bobby and Christina, because I got stuck in three hours of traffic. Note to self, never run a 10-minute errand before an interview. You never know what will happen. Anyways, without further ado, here is our show history episode. Welcome, you two. Hi. Hi, thank you for having us. We're so excited to be here. You know, we'd love to start out by asking you two to introduce yourselves to our audience and share a little bit about who you are. Cool. Thanks, man. Uh, well, hi, everybody. I'm Christina Miller-Weston. Um, I am a musical theater actress slash whoever wants to hire me actress. And uh, <laughs> I, also, I also have self-produced some stuff. Um, my husband and I wrote a short film that's been all over the world and finalized in festivals, which is super fun. Uh, and yeah, I am also the co-host of my favorite flop your newest Broadway obsession, all about fabulous failures and musical misfits. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of a brief story on me. Well, and I'm Bobby Traversa, and I, I've I've acted on stage. That's happened before. Um, but I've done yeah. all sorts of things. Uh, I oh goodness. I assisted the chairman of the musical theater department uh, at AMDA Los Angeles for a bit. Um, I've worked for a Broadway producer. We actually worked on a Broadway flop, which is so on brand. Yeah, you did. Uh, we produced uh, <laughs> The Visit starring Cheetah Rivera, Kander and Ebb's last musical on Broadway, um, which did not win all the money. Uh, but it was a fantastic experience that... Um, I won't say it was the catalyst for our little podcast, My Favorite Flop, but I think it was definitely one of those final pushes to be like, oh, you might be educated to talk about this, Buffy. But um, yeah, I, I produce, I, I coach people. Um, I've repertoire coached uh, actors for Broadway, national tours, cruise ships, reality TV competitions. Um, and yeah, our podcast is kind of an unexpected gift from the pandemic uh, that we are so excited uh, to be doing and celebrating some of my favorite musicals, which are the lesser knowns and the also rans, you know? I mean, Wicked is great, but so is Carrie, right? Oh my gosh, we love Carrie! Perfect, yes. <laughs> perfect. And for our listeners who may not be familiar with my favorite flop... Tell us about your podcast and how you two got started. Well, it all started last summer uh, during the pandemic when Christina was like seven months pregnant. Um, Bobby called me and was like, I want to do this. I've been wanting to do this for a long time and you're my person. And I was like, okay, great. And so we started brainstorming. I had a baby. We went back to brainstorming and then... Um, we did we did a pilot episode which no one has ever heard and yet, uh, maybe anyway. one day <laughs> and basically just kind of started building 
building what we wanted it to be. And we've grown a lot over these, this last, this first half of season one. We're really excited about what it's become. Yeah. I, Christina pretty much gave you everything. Um, (laughs) I was frustrated at the beginning of the pandemic, like so many people, Jocelyn, I'm sure. And Chrissy, you both can attest to what that means. Right. And I was like, I have to do something in my other life. I also work in tourism. So I'm like, I'm either going to talk about Broadway flops (laughs) or I'm going to give really ridiculous walking tours on a podcast (laughs) and walking tours on a podcast, uh, hasn't materialized yet, but, uh, I decided that I wanted to do this and I posted something on Facebook, but at the same time I was like, Christina separately, I want you to do this, but if you're not interested, I've posted it on Facebook and she was, <laughs> it didn't, I think maybe two seconds was like, yes, I don't even think I finished telling her what it was. She was like, we're doing it. Um, yeah. Well, just a really awesome, unexpected gift to come out of all of this. So I'd also love to take the opportunity to ask you both, what makes a musical a flop? Well, Mr. Bobby. well, by technical terms, and I think this is what we started with. I don't know if we vocalized it a lot, though, um, but it's... It's in our intro. If you've ever listened to one of our podcast episodes, that's especially true. the first three with the longer intro. Right, that's true. Steven explains it. He explains it. I mean, essentially, to, to me, to me personally, a flop is any show that doesn't recoup, um, you know, the money that goes in. So if it loses money, it technically is fair game for us to do on our show. And there are other qualifiers we use like less than 250 performances, which we stole from the famous not since Carrie book by Ken Mandelbaum. Uh, that's one of his qualifiers, but um, you know, you look at Spider-Man and that ran for many years and still lost 80 million bucks. <laughs> so, you know, we definitely want to show some love to the Peter Parkers as well, but um, by and large, less than 250, 50 performances, no national tour, West End transfer, um, and really it lost its money, right? Was there anything I'm missing, oh, yeah. Christina? Well, also it's we're basing it on its initial Broadway run. Right. So you you have shows um like even Bring It On, right? Bring It On was created to be just a national tour. Um, and was not supposed to go to Broadway. It was created so that way they could do the national tour on a large scale and they could take it around uh, the U.S. and basically sell it to the market that would license it. So high schools and um, smaller theater companies that have a younger audience or a younger talent pool, right? And that was what it was originally done. And then it was so great, right? Everyone fell in love with it that it ended up getting a Broadway run, but technically it failed on Broadway if you want to get technical about it, but it was never meant to be a Broadway success. And there are several shows that we get to talk about on our show, like our our teaser episode, which is about a Christmas story. And people know that that's, they put their money into that knowing that it's going to make its money back in licensing and on a tour and not necessarily on Broadway. But what qualifies for our show is that that initial run on Broadway flopped. Oh yeah. I mean, and that just allows us to include those Christmas stories and our pilot episode, which just secret for your listeners is all about into the woods that one day if we set up a Patreon, someone might hear that, but not today. One day. Naturally, we had to pick a flop musical to chat about today and we decided to stick within the same season we discussed in our last collaboration. So today we are talking about Big Fish. Oh, I've got my mug. mug. (laughs) I love it. Based on the celebrated novel by Daniel Wallace and the acclaimed film directed by Tim Burton, Big Fish tells the story of Edward Bloom, a traveling salesman who lives life to its fullest. 
and then some. Edward's incredible larger-than-life stories thrill everyone around him, most of all his devoted wife, Sandra. But their son, Will, about to have a child of his own, is determined to find the truth behind his father's epic tales. Big Fish opened in an out-of-town tryout at Chicago's Oriental Theater running from April 2nd to May 5th, 2013. The cast featured Norbert Leo Butts as Edward Bloom, Kate Baldwin as Sandra Bloom, Bobby Steggert as Will Bloom, Crystal Joy Brown as Josephine, Brad Oscar as Amos Calloway, and Ryan Andes as Carl. The show was directed and choreographed by Susan Stroman, with scenic design by Julian Crouch, lighting by Donald Holder, music direction by Mary Mitchell Campbell, and orchestrations by Larry Hotchman. Big Fish premiered on Broadway at the Neil Simon Theatre on September 5th, 2013 in previews and opened on October 6, 2013. The musical closed on December 29th, 2013 after 34 previews and 98 regular performances. Despite its early closure on Broadway, Big Fish was a story that hadn't finished being told, and the show became popular with regional theaters across the United States. After a college production of in Cicero, Illinois, in the summer of 2014, the show made its regional theater debut in the fall in Long Beach, California at Musical Theater West. That's right, you Californians. The California production featured partial sets, costumes, and multimedia aspects, which had been purchased after the closure of the Broadway production. Theatrical rights worldwide recent, recently licensed, licensed Wow, a 12-person cast version of Big Fish, which was first presented professionally at the new Hazelnut Theater in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania by Front Porch Theatricals in 2017. Well, and Big Fish also totally had success at the international level. I mean, it's been performed in Munich, in Glasgow in, in 2016, and um, by 2017 in April, that 12-person version of the show premiered in Australia, which is crazy. And then even later that year, Big Fish opened in London at the Other Palace, starring Kelsey Grammer, and ran from November to December, which is He's kind of perfect he for is. that, isn't good he? Good choice. Good choice. Good casting. And since we are partnering with my favorite flop today, I have to ask Christina and Bobby, <laughs> what classifies Big Fish as a flop? Go for it, Bobby. I mean, by the, the biggest marker, it lost its money on Broadway. So <clears throat> I would definitely say, you know, from the purest technical, like, clerical, is that the word? Sure. Standpoint. <laughs> um <laughs> It is officially a flop because it lost its money. But uh, I think that there are probably some other qualifiers as well, right, Christina? Yeah, I mean, there were... We'll probably talk about this later in the episode when we when we really dive into it. But one of the things that I noticed from when I worked on the show is that the Broadway production really went for the fantastical and really tried to emulate that Tim Burton visual storytelling and really go for it which I don't think that's the wrong choice but what Andrew Lippa did in the way he wrote the show especially the music it is very much about the the relationship between a son and a dad and so there are these beautiful moments in the show that are some of the best parts of the show hands down um, that are very intimate. And then you have this other side of it that is very fantastical and almost Lion King-esque, right? And I think one of the things that was missing from the Broadway production is that they didn't meld those two things. Yeah, I definitely felt very disjointed. I saw it three times on Broadway. And um, 
Uh, I think I paid for it twice and then was invited as an industry guest another time by Niederlander Worldwide, uh, who owned the theater that it was in. So that was also an interesting lens to see it with people who were working in the producing side of it. Mm. Um, but it felt like it, you're, I think so. Like, I think it, it just felt disjointed, you know, those fantastical moments with the daffodils, you know what I mean? Breathtaking visual on stage in that Broadway theater, but that's not really the story that Andrew Lippa was writing. And I don't even know if that's the story that the book writer was writing. It's you know? not. I mean, we met so. with the book writer when we did our production. So for those, sorry, I didn't clarify this. I was in the musical theater West production. That was the regional Broadway premiere. Um, I played Josephine and uh, Peggy Hickey choreographed and the book writers actually came and saw our production and they came and talked to us afterwards. And one of the things that they really appreciated about what we did um, and something Peggy really pushed forward um, was that it was more concentrated on the relationship between the father and the son. And that was something that they were in the middle of actually doing that rewrite for the 12 person show in Chicago um, when they came and saw our production. And this excited them even more to go in that direction and really strip it back and make it about that story. As with every show history episode, we have some fun facts about Big Fish. <laughs> Number one. There are two main differences between the original film and the movie. The mythical town of Spectre and Edward's quest to save it from destruction has been folded into Edward's hometown of Ashton. Also in the musical, the witch and Jenny Hill are two distinct characters, while in the film, they are the same character played by Helena Bonham Carter. Number two. Mean Girl star Renee Rapp won the 2018 Jimmy Award for Best Performance by an Actress for her portrayal of Sandra Bloom. And our final fun fact, which Christina has already given away a little bit, <laughs> in the show's regional theater debut, our very own Christina Miller-Weston of our favorite flop and one of our guests today played Josephine. And I think that last fun fact leads us right into the segment where we discuss our own experiences with the show. So Christina, what was it like being a part of Big Fish's regional premiere? I It was interesting being a part of this first time out. Um, so to speak, especially since the show didn't get a tour, didn't get a national tour, went straight from being on Broadway to regional houses. Um, and Peggy Hickey, for anyone who has worked with her or knows her, takes great care in that thought process. Um, she really, even though she's a choreographer, she is very much a director choreographer and is very heavy handed in storytelling when it comes to the production as a whole. Um, and it's something I love about her and one of the reasons why I love working with her. Um, and it was, it, there was a constant conversation between the creatives, uh, between the creative team about how do we highlight the real story that's being told, which is the story between Edward and his son. And we were very blessed that we had um, an incredible actor playing Edward. Um, Jeff Scowron, if anyone just go do a deep dive, he's done a bunch of Broadway shows and, you know, he's done a bunch of film and TV and he's great, but he is, he's just one of the most incredible actors I've ever worked with. And what was really interesting for me in the process was because I was playing Josephine, who does not have a song. Well, she has eight bars. Sorry. She has an eight bar solo while she's getting an ultrasound. <laughs> But it's really, it's an acting role, right? And so what was really cool about this job for me was I just got to sit back and listen. I just got to 
listen to Jeff tell stories. And I, it was such as an actor, when you get a job like that, where you get to just be the listener, you learn so much. You learn so much from that process and learning that from someone who is as skilled as Jeff is, is just, it, it was one of my favorite jobs I've ever had. Um, and it's so beautiful the way that the story plays out in that final, oh, I'm going to cry. I was listening to the, I was listening to the soundtrack again, the cast album in prep for our, us doing this episode. And it got to that final number when um, his son breaks him out of the, breaks him out of the hospital and like takes him on an adventure and they show up and everyone from his stories is there. And the way that it was staged in our production was he comes out and we all come out from the wings one by one, each and every one of us, the entire ensemble has their own moment with, with Jeff. And it was, I'm, uh, I, I get teary every time I think about it. I cried every single night. I cried every single night. I cried every single rehearsal. Every time we rehearsed that moment, we had to all walk out of the room and just like take a second because if you have the right, if you have the right cast, you have the right actor in that role, that is exactly what happens, right? You immediately connect to that character in one way or another, whether it's you see yourself in him, you see your grandfather, you see your father, you see whatever that is, whatever that relationship is, you see someone you know in that character. And that to me is the heart of this show. And I think something, and you know, based on my conversations with Bobby and those who I know who have seen the show and I've seen, you know, bootlegs of the show. Um, but that was something that was missing. And I, you know, I wasn't part of those rehearsals. I wasn't a part of that creative process. So I couldn't tell you why, but as an audience member, I don't, I didn't connect to it. Um, and, but at its, at its heart, Big Fish is such a beautiful story where you get to, you get to play as an actor because it's all over, you know, it's all tall tales. It's tall tales. Who doesn't love tall tales, you know? And it's just, ugh, I, there's something really beautiful about the show. Well, like I said uh, a little bit ago, I saw it three times and um, I, you know, when I walked out of the theater, I don't know if it was my favorite thing I saw in New York. You know what I mean? Um, it did feel disjointed. I don't know if I knew the show might not be successful, but I definitely, and I think I may have even seen it the first time in previews. So it was, it was changing things. And this is a musical that I remember the talk of the town. There were many changes being made, especially after that initial out of town tryout, you know, um, Christina, we had talked about this at one point. You had gotten your production, gotten a bunch of costumes that didn't even end up in the Broadway production. That because basically, Musical Theater West bought the <clears throat> Broadway sets and costumes, all of it, and then utilized what they needed to for their production. Uh, but yeah, there was a lot of stuff that like never ended up in the show. Yeah. I, there's like a there was like famously a witch song that didn't end up on Broadway, and there were lots of complicated costumes. I just remember hearing that in New York. But yeah, I, I remember watching it and thinking, you know, I'd seen the film growing up, the movie. Obviously, I'm a big Tim Burton fan. And I don't know if this speaks positively or negatively, but I watched the show on Broadway. I'm like, wait, have I have I really seen this movie before? Because it it didn't, there were so many like minor details that were different, you know, like the the his hometown being the town in the movie that he goes to being different. You know what I mean? Um, 
it it definitely it made me go back and watch the film and I'm like, huh, this is interesting because they took artistic license to change the story where they felt they needed to. And, you know, I usually advocate for that a lot. One of the things that unless you do it very, very well, like I think some musicals can, is when you're adapting a movie is trying not to just make it a movie. Let's insert songs here. You know what I mean? Like, let's take the movie, what worked on screen, and here are the famous lines. Let's turn those into three and a half minute musical numbers. And I'm glad that they didn't do that with Big Fish. Um, but yeah, I I definitely <laughs> felt that it wasn't quite ready for Broadway during that original production. Yeah. And you listen to, if you listen to the cast album that they've released, it's on Spotify, at least, there are actually um, cut out songs that they, they add as bonus material. And a couple of them are Kate's songs. And listening to those is actually really interesting because they almost sound completely different than what Lippa ended up putting into the show. Like there are elements from those songs that made it into the show and certainly like little phrases and stuff that she sings that I'm like, oh, that's in that song. Oh, that's so funny. She had an entire song about this one line, right? Like, and that is really cool. Um, and it's really fun to go back and listen to that for anyone who has a chance, uh, go go find the Spotify playlist because it's it has fun stuff like that in there. Um, but I think that it's, I had so much fun doing it and it's cool because the way that it functions is like a lot of us who were playing the supporting roles, we got to be in some of the other scenes, right? Like we got to play other characters, even Josephine, you guys ready for this? You ready for some secret sauce? Josephine, and this was the same track as it was on Broadway. Josephine actually comes out as one of the red, white, and blue girls. And so <laughs> for anyone who's seen it, there is a worst quick change of my life. So you come out, you cross stage, you're crossing stage, doing a scene, crossing stage, doing a scene to open act two. And then you come off in the wing, you do a quick change. Mind you, in this scene that you just crossed stage in, you are pregnant. So you come out, you completely strip down, you drop a pregnant belly, you get into red, white, and blue, new, new wig, new everything, tap shoes, go out and tap your face off for five minutes and then come back off, do another quick change and go back into the hospital room. And you're just like, this is great. <laughs> um, but one night I almost went on stage with the pregnant belly still on. We had missed it in the quick change because it goes over the leotard that you're wearing. And I, yeah. so they put on the dress over the leotard, right? So dress goes on, they got my shoes changed. They've got my wig on and they're like, go. And I was like, okay. And then all of a sudden I hear someone say, don't go. But I'm like already stepping on stage and she literally rips, <laughs> she rips the pregnant belly from me and drops it and I step over it and walk on stage. Oh my gosh, it was great. It was so good. And part of me wishes that I had still made it out with the pregnant belly on. I really wish that I, there was a US pregnant USO girl. That would have been great. Yeah, I, I, you know, the hearing you describe it like that, Christina, I, it reminds me a lot of Susical, and I love Susical, and I, and I, and I'm going to blasphemy. I'm going to say Susical is a stronger show than Big Fish, but, you know, people, people <laughs> had issues with Susical on Broadway because they tried to make Susical the you know the webulous world of dr seuss you know what i mean and what seussical has really worked not only has it like been become one of the most successful shows in the amateur market 
ever made. But what works is that theater works production where they literally just had like 12 people and it was an actual child and pulling things out of a trunk. And this show, that's what they lost on Broadway. The show is about a man telling these stories and the fantastic elements of the stories. And then at the end, like you said, realizing they're all the people in his life, right? And you kind of get that, like, that Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz moment. But on Broadway, everything was fantastic. It was so big. So it's like, it was already big in the real life scenes. And then, you know, daffodils, okay, great. It's going to get even bigger. But there was, in, in Broadway production had such an amazing cast. I mean, Norbert, Leo, Bobby Steger. I mean, um, oh my gosh, why am I forgetting her name? Kate Baldwin, oh my gosh, who was the most breathtaking person in that cast. Like, break your heart. Yeah, I, it, yeah, it just, that even the cast who should have just been so great in this, there was such a disconnect in what the heart, I think, of the show is. You just you feel it. Yeah, I would, I would agree with you. As a dancer, of course, I am a Susan Stroman fan. I will never be in one of her shows because I'm too short but I'm here for it. Right. Like I, I, I've seen a lot of her work and it's fabulous stuff, but yes, I agree. I think that there is, there's other elements, like you said, Bobby, that factor into what could make this show very successful. Um, and there is a lot of funny, I mean, some of the funny bits are things with Amos and Carl. I mean, we had Tim Hughes in our production as Carl, which I'm sure most of your listeners know him from Hades town, from uh, greatest showman from all of those things. And he's fabulous. And he was hilarious as Carl because Carl plays the, he plays the judge at one point for anyone who knows he's the, he plays the uh, giant in that first sequence in act one. And then in the second act, he comes back as the giant, but he's a lawyer. Um, And Tim's a fabulous actor, a fabulous performer and really brought that to life. Um, but it is, it's, um, there's a lot of funny in it, but it is momentary, right? It's mo- you have to get it in, get it out. Cause then you got to move on. You got to move on to the real story. Um, and that was, I, one thing I did appreciate is that no one tried to force Josephine to have a bigger role than she did. I actually think that was something that was done very successfully in the show. I think that having her at She's basically, she gets to be the audience's eyes, right? She learns, she gets to learn all of this and the audience learns because she is learning. Um, And that vehicle I think was very well utilized, very smart um, and certainly is exploited in the way that it should be. It, well, it, and it does like, you know, uh, and I love Susan Stroman. I mean, Susan Stroman is a goddess, but um, she is she is spectacle and showgirls. And I mean, that's was the cast of Big Fish. I mean, <laughs> but I don't know if she was the right choice. I mean, I and I can't and this is awful. I can't think of the female that I would replace her with. And I should have a name, but I do know male wise someone like Alex Timbers, who um, you know, Peter and the Star Catcher and Beetlejuice and like, I mean, these things, I think he is more suited as a director for this kind of material because it's tough, like for essentially a show that should be, you know, it's him, it's, 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 it's Edward Bloom talking about um, his stories and they're coming to life. You know, there are tricks that you have to employ to make that happen on stage. 
in a, you know, in a really effective way. And, um, you, you, it takes the right director, I think, to, to some of these big fantastical things. I mean, and we can do all sorts of things on Broadway. We can make Elphaba Buff fly, you know, um, Elsa's dress can change in a flash, literally. Um, and, you know, we can make, you know, one one show that, that might eventually show up on our little podcast, uh, you know, Dracula, we can make Dracula literally disappear as he's walking towards the audience literally i don't even understand how it worked i have to research it but he disappeared in front of you know 2000 people in a broadway theater you know the the right directors can figure these things out but susan stroman mm. i think really succeeds with that the producers realm and things like that um and you know big musical comedies mm. but while there are comedic elements there's there's a, an emotional drama to big fish that i don't know yeah. if it's her wheelhouse i don't know that's just I just well, and I think there's in. a way to still have that moment um, and make it. Uh, the thing is, it's like, it's big fish. It has to be fantastical. There has to be fantastical moments. And then it's about finessing. How do you get from fantastical moment into smaller story without losing anybody and bringing it back to Beetlejuice. I saw Beetlejuice and at, it is the way that that theater functions it is very intimate and that stage is actually really small it's not very big especially the backstage space I had a friend who was in it so I got to go backstage and he was showing it to me and like this the house set there are three versions of it and it has to break into bits like literal bits to fit back there right and so I don't remember which theater Big Fish was at Bobby do you remember oh gosh maybe the Neil Simon Okay, I haven't been backstage there, I don't think. Is that where Les Mis was? No, Neil Simon's where Hairspray was and the Ragtime. It's a small theater, too. It is. Okay. It's a small stage. Got it. I was going to say, maybe that was part of the problem, was that it was swallowed up by a big stage. But never mind. That point That point doesn't, doesn't play. Well, but, <laughs> yeah. but it, you know, it is, it's about utilizing the space you're in as well right like if you've got an intimate theater being able to change your lighting right lighting is a huge part of success to moments because it focuses since you don't have a camera you know if you're if you're looking at it from a different medium you don't have a camera to move the the audience's eye to where you want them to focus so you have to do that with lighting so that way their eye focuses where you as the director want them to look um, and so like a big part of changing things can be in the lighting design and be in some of that. And that's certainly a way to, to utilize storytelling in the visual sense. So usually this is the part of the episode where we answer questions sent in by our listeners. However, since we have extra special guests today, we thought we would take the time and ask these questions of Bobby and Christina so you could all get to know them a little bit more. So what was the first musical you ever saw? <laughs> um... I, I mean, I saw all the movie musicals, like all classic movie musicals um, were my jam as a kid. And my first one of those was American in Paris. And that was actually what ignited my love for musical theater. Um, and, and I mean, the movie with Gene Kelly, not the stage play, obviously. Um, and then I guess the first Broadway show I ever saw, it must have been Hairspray. It was Hairspray. Hairspray with Matthew Morrison and um, Marissa Jart Winokur. 
uh, were definitely in it. I don't know if it was the entire original cast. I think it may have been after she had like taken a leave of absence and then had come back and Matthew came back at the same time. Um, that was my first one. And that was, uh, that was certainly, it was a good one. It was high octane for sure. And as a dancer, I was like, yes, let's go. <laughs> I wanted to do it. Um, I also had no idea how they breathe at the end. And then I learned the secret sauce on that later, but yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was, that would probably be my first Broadway show, I think. Well, so I can't tell you the first one I ever saw in life, but I can tell you my first Broadway one. Uh, and the first musical I saw on Broadway was the 2009 revival of Ragtime. And I cried for three hours. So rush seats, front row, literally, again, Bobby Steger, uh, Christian Knoll. I mean, I thought it was brilliant. And I will fight anyone who wants to talk smack on that revival. So that's my answer. <laughs> talk smack. What is your favorite flop? Christina, you go first. Um, my favorite flop is technically not a flop because I don't think it ever went to Broadway, but it is Andrew Lippa's Wild Party. That is my ultimate, and uh, I could talk for hours about that show. Well, and my very stereotypical answer for anyone who knows me for two seconds, <laughs> carry the musical. Oh, there we go. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> there we go. It makes me so sad because in my head, before we jumped into our podcast, Carrie was meant to be the first episode and I got talked out of it and we're like, we'll do it around Halloween or we'll do it at episode 10. And then our buddies at Out for Blood ended up yep. creating- Really outdid us. The, the podcast of all podcasts about Carrie the Musical. And I'm like, well, maybe we'll host a round table one day. But if we do, yeah. I think we would love to have both you- and Chrissy join us because I think it would be fun to talk to people who are about passionate about the show. Cause I, I would consider myself a Carrie connoisseur. I mean, I, I know all things about the flops, but I mean, I, I got all the Carrie. You so do have all the I, 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 it would be, I think just interesting for a, an iconic show to hear from a large group of people, what, what they feel about it, because that's the one thing I think is missing from the out for blood podcast is really the legacy from people not involved with the show and why it's touched them. That's you know, amazing. Sorry. I went on this whole little <laughs> no, it's no, brilliant. No, no. I love it. I love it. <laughs> you asked us what our Tim Hortons order was, so we must ask you the American equivalent. You have to. What is your Duncan order? It's so good. So I'll give you my Duncan order because I lived in New York for 10 years and that's true. Christina probably has a Starbucks order, so I'm just warning you. Well, my Duncan order my is a large cold brew with three sweet and low, half and half, and the coconut, sugar-free coconut flavor shot. I, when I moved to New York, this is fun. Um, I'm from California and we yeah. don't have, they're, they're becoming a thing in California, but it's really used to just be an East Coast thing. So Starbucks. And when I got to New York, I was like, I don't like this Dunkin' Donuts coffee. Y'all are crazy. Uh, and so I had to put the coconut flavor in just to enjoy it. But then they released their cold brew. And there's a there's a there's a chocolatiness to the cold brew coffee um, on its own. There's a little bit of a like a chocolatey flavor profile. So with the coconut, it's actually even better. So it, that's that's my my Dunkin' order, like to the point where I will order m too much Duncan and need to stop myself so I don't go bankrupt. Like, yeah, that's, that's my Duncan order. <laughs> so I am a bit of a coffee snob. Uh, I do not like Starbucks coffee. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of Duncan, but I also didn't like 
live on the East Coast and live and drink Duncan, if that makes sense. But here in LA, there is an infamous coffee shop called Priscilla's. And uh, I will drink their blueberry iced coffee all day, every day. It is incredible. And the only other place in the world that I've ever found iced blueberry coffee is actually in Maine. Um, The town that Ogunquit Playhouse is in has a little coffee shop that's like on the edge of a cliff by the water. Like I would just, one day I accidentally found it on a walk and I was like coming here every day. (laughs) They have amazing blueberry iced coffee, but that's my jam is I will drink blueberry iced coffee from either the random place in Ogunquit, Maine or (laughs) Priscilla's Coffee. So anyone who comes to LA, look Priscilla's Coffee up because it's genuinely the best coffee you'll ever drink. That's awesome. As podcasters, what is the biggest thing you've learned since you started? A lot of things. I've learned to listen. And I think I, and no, and I'm going to answer that for both of us so that she can give a separate answer. But uh, that's been a big thing in my favorite flop land. And I, I wonder, Jocelyn, if you and Chrissy have found the same thing is, you know, talking about, especially our show, I think is, is, I think it's, it's easy to say our show really is geek-tastic. You know what I mean? We get to nerd out about uh, stuff that I'm passionate about, and I think Christina is becoming even more passionate about than she was. And um, when you are talking about fandom and, you know, lesser-known kind of rarities and things like that, there's a um, there's an eagerness to just want to share everything and just, like, talk and talk and talk and be so excited. But it playback you definitely have to make sure that you're listening to your podcast friend, uh, you know, your fellow co-host so that the the conversation is balanced because, you know, even, even um, just talking, having a phone conversation, you think, Oh, that was so lovely. You go back and you listen and it's like, Oh, wait a second. I was dominating that. Like I'm talking over and it's in, in the moment, it doesn't feel like, you're interrupting or you're being rude or anything like that. It's, it's, it's kind of like how film it's like film adds 10 pounds or film things read differently on camera. It's, you can feel one thing in the real life moment, but when you take real life and you remove it from the real life, there's a different (laughs) perception. So listening, I think has been huge that, that we're, we're getting better. I don't know if we've mastered it completely. I struggle every day still, but listening. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Bobby definitely hit the nail on the head with that one. Um, And it's all good stuff. Like it's not, it's all good. And um, yeah, I think one of the things I've learned, there's been a lot I've learned about the process and like properly, like through this, we've also learned a lot about what kind of stories we want to tell within these episodes, right? Um, And that has been a really fun journey to get to play and experiment and see what works and what doesn't. But one of the things that has been really exciting for me on a personal level to learn from is I, we talked about this on the podcast a bunch, but I am, I came so late to the game when it comes to what my career is like musical theater in general. Um, I, I really only knew classic movie musicals. I didn't know much about Broadway and and what was available and around um, when I went to college and I, it was definitely a quick learning curve. I had to like figure it out right away. 
Um, but getting to do this podcast where we get to focus and hyper-focus on individual shows has brought about a new kind of love for me. I mean, I certainly have attached to certain shows that have been presented to me or I've been a part of, and I do, I'm, I'm a research girl. Like I want to know, I want to know source material. I want to know why they made it. So that way I understand the intention of the writer. So that way as an actor, I'm able to give an authentic performance and stay true to the original storytelling and, and intention of the piece. And that's a big thing for me personally as, a, as, an, as an artist. Um, but what's been great about this is that none of it is for an end result of a performance. I just get to learn. And that has been such a wonderful blessing. Like our last episode was Carnival in Flanders and we knew nothing, nothing. Our executive producer, Stephen, just was like, I think this is going to be our Tony episode. And we're like, I don't, what? I've never even heard of this show. What's happening? And so we were like, okay, great. I guess we'll do it and see what happens. And it ended up being just a complete joy to learn about this show, to reimagine it as well. I mean, we are also very lucky that we're working on shows that failed. So like we get to like have a conversation about how could we reimagine this? What's new and exciting. Right. Um, and like, is there a life that could still exist with this story? You know, is the story good enough? And that is fun. It's fun for a creative mind. It also sends, I don't know. I don't want to speak for Bobby, but it sends me on a spiral of like, I want to produce the things. And I, I can't, know. like, I, I don't mean. have any money. Um, but <laughs> anyone who's listening, I'm here. <laughs> I'm ready. Um, and so it's been ah. real. It's been such a joy to get to do that kind of stuff and do it with, you know, one of my dearest and longest friends who's been such a champion in my life. Bobby has always, always been such a champion in my career and I so appreciate him. So this has been such a joy getting to do this journey with him. Yeah. I'll, I'll piggyback on that for two seconds. I mean, I love, it's so crazy because I met Christina in her baby musical theater phase and <laughs> literally the first day <laughs> she was one of the ones who latched on and it was that weird moment where there were moments we went to school together but then there were moments that I was a staff member at the school and she was a student <laughs> and I like and now like many years later it all kind of just blurs in my head but um you know we we had our time in Los Angeles. I moved to New York and then there were big stretches that Christina was in New York and we got to hang out and we got to go out for coffee and we got to have drinks and we got to see shows together. And it was such a joy. And, you know, her career took her to other places, back to LA, getting married, things like that. But um, I would say this is probably the longest stretch that we've been able to hang out consistently, even though it's on the internet, you know? <laughs> um, and so it, it has been a joy and to work on a project we're both passionate about. And for the most part, without many hiccups at all, you know, it's been, it's been, it's been really awesome. And I, yeah, I'm so happy to get to celebrate someone who Christina, I always tell people, I know a lot about musical theater. Sometimes I question how much I actually like musical theater, but I know lots and lots about it, but there are a few people and I, and now I know a couple more because Jocelyn, you and Chrissy are just so fabulous as well. But to, to know about people who really just are passionate about the art form, you know, there are lots of people who are in this industry who are obsessed with performing and the idea of performing and their careers of performing. But the actual, like the material, it's so rare. I just, in, in my years in this industry, 
even on Broadway, like, and it makes me so sad because you, you, you meet people on Broadway and you're like, oh my gosh, you must be obsessed that you're in this. Like I talked to one of the cast members, um, from Carrie, Gianna DeWall, who played Chris, I did a show, I was stage managing a, 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 sh- a touring show that she was in in the United States. And I had to pick her up from the airport and drive her for about three hours, just me and her. So we chatted a bit and I told her I was a big fan of the show and everything. And I love her to death, but, um, you know, it wasn't the life-changing experience being in Carrie would have been for me. You know what I mean? And I was like, that makes me sad. But I, I, I you know, you have to realize that not everybody is passionate about the material. So it's really awesome to get to celebrate people who are. Oh, that's so. really great. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today. I had so much fun chatting with you both and we can't wait to get this episode up and out to our listeners. Thank you. It has been a treat for Thanks. us as well. Bye. Thank you everyone for tuning in to another episode of Breaking the Curtain and for bearing with me as I did this Chrissy-less. Um, as always, I'm Jocelyn and Chrissy is usually here. You can find us at Breaking the Curtain and our new guests from My Favorite Flop, Christina and Bobby. You can find them at www.myfavoriteflop.com and wherever you like to listen to podcasts. I would definitely recommend listening into them. And yeah, stay safe, stay stagey, and we will see you guys next time. Take care. Bye.